Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 25 of the Rocket IT Business Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Hyatt, and today we're talking with my friend and financial expert, Bill McDermott. Though there were 40 years, 40 years, Bill, 40 years of banking experience under his belt, Bill made the shift from business banker to consultant after life threw him a curveball. And today we'll learn how Bill has built his practice and adopted, adapted to the needs of the marketplace. Bill has a great story. I'm looking forward to hearing it. Some keen insights that I'm excited to share with our audience. So I'm going to jump right in, Bill. Welcome to the show. Matt, thanks so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Excited about our talk today. Yeah, absolutely. So Bill, tell us a little bit about yourself. I want to hear the story. I know you came from a banking background, but you're an entrepreneur like me, and so we have a lot in common. I want to hear a little bit about your story and how you arrived at the entrepreneurial doorstep. Yeah, so it's a it's my story. So of course, I think it's a great story. <laughs> but 12 years now as an entrepreneur, I was not an entrepreneur by choice. Mm-hmm. As having spent 32 years in the banking industry, the Great Recession hit, and I was the chief commercial lender at a community bank. And the bank said, Bill, you're doing a great job, but we've mm-hmm. got to cut cost. And you were the last one in, so you're the first one out. Wow. And so at that point, we had two daughters in college, had a mortgage to pay, and I had to figure out how to reinvent myself. So had a, you know, had a little conversation with, with the man upstairs and said, uh, well, you've closed a door. How about opening a window? And by the way, would you put a little neon around it for me <laughs> right. so I could see it? All right. And so uh, that launched a great adventure of helping business owners become better financial managers. I saw in my banking career that generally business owners were great salespeople. They were great client delivery or operations people. Just about every CEO I met really struggled with the financial aspects of the business. Mm -hmm. They don't teach it in school and there's no on the job training, you know, when you're the CEO. Right. In my banking career, also, if I take it back all the way to the beginning, so I was the repo man for a bank auto dealer department Mm. uh, coming out of Wake Forest with my high-powered undergraduate degree. And (laughs) at that time, banks believed that you had to learn how to collect loans Mm. before you learned how to make loans. Mm -hmm. And so I had a, I had a, a toe, toe bar. I can't remember what you call them, but anyway, I had a, I was the repo man. Wow. For, uh, so for you the were the heavy they sent out into the field to pick up these cars that were being paid for? You know, I, don't, I didn't really command much of a physical presence <laughs> one year out in school. And plus, I was newly married. So my wife thought she was going to be the youngest widow ever. But, All right. but we survived. And I did my best to collect those, collect those past due car loans. I have some stories, but 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 I, I don't think your listeners would would really be that interested. I don't know. In this. We could go a whole different path here than what we planned. That's pretty interesting. So I actually I don't know that I remember that we had something in common there because I sort of started my career as a bill collector. Ah, uh, as a bill collector. Okay, J.C. Penny back in the day. Sure. Uh, now I didn't have to go knock on any doors or see anyone in person. Everything was done on the phone. But what I I found was. So my approach was Mr. Nice Guy. You know, I'm, I'm here to help solve your problem. And let's see if we can work through. It's a payment plan or whatever. And what I found was that was actually very helpful 
in sort of the what's the word I'm looking for? The training, the care and feeding of Matt Hyatt, young sure. you know, young professional, and just learning to work with people through difficult conversations. So. Yeah, my clients tell me that I have a fair amount of empathy. And so I, I recall early in the days I tried to take, yeah, you catch more bees with honey than vinegar. <laughs> and so why not try to put yourself in that person's situation, mm-hmm. understand what their circumstances are, mm-hmm. what they can do, what they can't do, have reasonable expectations. I mean, let's agree, banks don't want to repossess cars. No. And so the reality is, allow that person to continue to use the car, function in their life, figure out a good solution that creates Mm. a win-win for both parties. Right. There you go. So I remember the the financial crisis. In some ways, it feels like it was a long time ago. And in other ways, it feels like it wasn't that long ago, right? Yeah, that's for sure. 12 years, right? That, That goes by fairly quickly. But I do remember one particular experience of Going, you know, there was a job fair, career fair that was happening. It was probably 2008, maybe mid to late 2008. And arriving at this career fair, we had a booth, right? We were looking to to hire and recruit young tech talent, really. Mm -hmm. But just being shocked at the number of uh, suits lined up outside the door to get into the career show. Yeah. And it was it was a very scary thing. A lot of people unexpectedly lost their jobs. And it, and you're absolutely correct. I don't think it was unique to you. There were a ton of folks that were, you know, and we're not talking about entry-level employees necessarily. We're talking middle-level and even high-level executives suddenly finding themselves without a job. It's a scary time. So you taking the initiative to say, okay, I'm going to reinvent Bill McDermott, and uh, now I'm going to be an entrepreneur is a, is a brave thing. But we we get a lot of courage when when forced to, right? Yeah. So what do they job. What do they say? Necessity is the mother of invention. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Exactly. I, I think the other thing too, Matt, is my dad was a banker. Mm-hmm. He was a career banker, but his career did take a turn at one point in time where he had an opportunity to get in on the ground floor of Cessna Finance Corporation. Mm. But I, I think at that point in time, I held on to the belief that if you work really hard, your company is going to take care of you because I saw how companies took care of my father. Mm. The other thing is, I think there is a, there is a path that we seem to gravitate towards, which is go to college, get a degree, be a successful professional, work really hard, and you'll have the ability to retire one day, and then you can do what you love. Mm -hmm. And so in looking back, I bought into that dream, Mm -hmm. but that was not my dream. I believe at 54 years old, with 32 years of banking experience, I was destined to launch my own business. So believe it or not, for any listener out there, at 54, I started a business from scratch. You can actually do it anytime Mm -hmm. that you want to. Yes, there are risks 
involved. But that was the start of living my dream, Mm. Matt, because what I had seen for years in banking, as I mentioned, business owners struggle with how to improve cash flow, Mm. how to improve profitability, how to grow their business. How am I sure that I have a well-conceived strategy where I'm clearly differentiating myself in the marketplace? How am I doing at establishing processes so that I'm not having redundancies in my organization? How am I executing? Am I effective as well as efficient? And then cash, you know, how do I create cash in my organization? Can I collect my money faster? Can I increase my revenue? Do I need to increase my prices? And that's something, you know, I, I certainly tip my hat to you as a successful CEO of a 25-year business. I believe it's, it's roughly 25 years. Mm-hmm. You have seen a lot, but yet you have, have built a business and really, you know, beat the odds. Most 80% of businesses fail in the yeah. first five years. So, yeah. so 25 years is not only a credit to you, but also a credit to the team that you've built. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Well, you know, it's funny you say you're talking about building your business and starting a business at 54. And like I said, that does take quite a bit of courage. And I think for a lot of folks, it's tough to make that sort of scary decision without some sort of pressure to do it, right? Because there's some comfort and safety in what's known. And certainly an entrepreneurial venture is there are a lot of unknowns for that. I am curious though, I remember talking with you when you were planning to start your business way back in the day and you had a business plan and you had an idea of what you wanted to do. How does that compare that plan that you wrote 12, 14 years ago to the one that you're actually executing now? Yeah, actually it's different. That's a great question. So when I started, in the Great Recession, I was really focused on businesses that were actually in trouble. Mm-hmm. There actually is a department of the bank called the Special Assets Department. S- that sounds a- good. Special S-A-D. Assets. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you're sad if you're in that department. But uh, well, not good. <laughs> yeah. Well, and so they're special because there's special risk with those businesses. Oh, okay. And so excessive risk, banks... Banks run their business based on risk. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, of course, the economy dealt all of us uh, a blow. Mm -hmm. So my first business was actually negotiating banking plans for businesses that were in special assets and then finding them financing. So quick story, I was actually speaking at the Southeast Accounting Show to a group of CPAs talking about something called forbearance agreements. Forbearance agreements were very common back then because the bank didn't want to liquidate a business, but there was a default on the loan. And so you go into forbearance because the bank is delaying declaring a default. And so I had a CPA that said, you know, raise their hand. I have a client that's about to sign one of those. Can you help? Oh, interesting. And so what led there is there was a business, a retail business, five locations. Only two of them were profitable, $16 million in debt. Wow. Because they owned the real estate on all the locations. 
So actually over a three-year period, we negotiated $16 million down to a million. Wow. We had two short sales. Both were approved by the lender. But that last million dollars, they actually, the bank drew a line in the sand. We're not going to renew it. You have to pay it. We couldn't pay it. And so the only alternative was was bankruptcy. Mm. Well, nine months later, the lender said, look, uh, pay us 10 cents on the dollar and we'll settle. So out of that million dollars, they were able to scramble and write a check for $100,000. Wow. They had negotiated $16 million of debt down to zero uh, and also were left with two profitable locations with no debt, mm. having eliminated uh, all the debt on the other three as well. So I did a lot of that. Wow, yeah. And so, but what I found is once you help a business owner like that, they want you as part of their team. So I started something called the monthly financial review. They wanted me to coach them on their business. And so what I did was actually take the financials, look at the trends. How are they doing as far as liquidity? Are they collecting their receivables well, turning their inventory if they have it? Are they generating cash? How profitable are they? Are the trends positive or negative and why? Uh, are they leveraged? Is the amount of debt relative to the amount of equity in the business high or low? Mm -hmm. And then uh, the last thing was really just understanding how they were, uh, um, you know, how much cash on hand sure. that they had yeah. as well. So the monthly financial review morphed into what I am today is the profitability coach. There you go. And so from <laughs> negotiating banking plans and finding financing, I still do the finding financing. That's about half of my business. Uh, it's difficult to borrow money from a bank if you've never done it before. And so I help businesses find financing. And then I also do the profitability coaching. So about 50-50 wow. mix roughly. And it changes depending on the economy. But the economy is really... Moving right now, I have quite a few clients that are making significant capital investments, uh, equipment, real estate, buying businesses. And so uh, financing is an important part, but also just teaching those business owners how to be better financial managers and how to have the profitability in their business is, right. is really what I'm passionate about. Right. I love it. So there are a lot of things that you said there that I think that are interesting and worth diving into a little bit. but. One is that while it's probably important to sit down and think about what a business might look like before actually launching one, hence a business plan is probably not a bad idea, I've found that it is absolutely worth doing some pathfinding once you launch the business to find the, what the market really needs and what we're good at, right? What, what are we capable of delivering and, and what, uh, what do folks actually want to pay for and buy, right? And so, and part of it is probably just what is the state of, uh, of the uh, marketplace? You know, back when you started, there were a lot of folks that were facing bankruptcy, forbearance. By the way, forbearance is a deferment of payments. Isn't that how that works, yes. basically? Yes. We're not saying, hey, you don't have to pay. We're saying you have to pay, but we're going we're gonna to delay coming after you. Correct. Essentially. Okay. Yes. So good. So back to 
being able to pivot, I think, is a really important trait and capability for any entrepreneur and any, any business needs to be continually really looking for. Yeah. Where's the opportunity? Where are my interests? What do I think that I'm good at? And what does the market want to buy? Right? Yeah. So as you're mentioning that, two things come to mind. In my experience, first, I believe it takes a village to, to get started. There were, there were many people that I talked to. One person suggested to me there is a great book by Michael Gerber. It's mm. called The E-Myth. Yes. It, that book encourages you to build a prototype mm-hmm. uh, for your business. And so to your point, having a plan is important, even though my plan changed. Gerber's book, I think, really guided me on creating my version of a business plan mm-hmm. because it causes you to focus on things like, well, why am I starting this business? You know, Simon Sinek says, know your why. Yes. And also, what is it going to take as far as resources, people, time, and money? And I think the other thing, I'm going to take a page. You remember Jim Collins's book, Good to Great? Sure. So Collins asserts that good is the enemy of great. And in order to be great, you really have to look at three circles, and then determine where those circles meet. So the first circle is, what am I passionate about? I'm passionate about making business owners better financial managers. Mm-hmm. I love to see them have the, the business of their dreams. What am, I, what am I best in the world at? My clients tell me I'm a pretty good listener. Mm. And so listening to things and having the ability to connect the dots either in strategy or the dots in execution is is what my clients tell me I'm I'm really good at and then the third thing is what drives your economic engine mm. so how do I take making business owners better financial managers and being a good listener well that's consulting mm-hmm. in a nutshell consultants help business owners and of course, coaches not only help business owners, but also, you know, they not only provide the fix, but they can actually walk the client through the fix right. as well. Right. I tell you, all the books that you mentioned are, they're sort of foundational for a lot of entrepreneurs. A lot of great material in all three of those books. Like you, Emeth was foundational for me. Mm-hmm. One of the things I loved about EMF was the idea that you would sit down and really think about all the different hats that you wear in the business. You know, for, for those of us that bootstrap businesses, I think you and I fall in that category. Early on, you sort of figure out, wait a second, uh, you know, I got into it because I have an affinity for computers and technology, right? I like, I like that. And you know, got, to, got to the point where I had some skills in that area. So I was the technologist. Well, guess what? You're not going to actually sell anything unless you go talk with some people that want to consume technology services. And so you wear the salesperson hat. Well, I guess I probably should do some marketing around that. I need to, you know, have business cards printed. I need to go to some chamber events and join some civic uh, organizations. So I'm wearing the marketing hat. Yes, I also need to be an accountant so I can get my invoices out and figure out what to do when the checks arrive or don't. So all of those things are various roles 
in our business. And, you know, when you and I started, I think we were both in the same boat. Yeah. How many people work work at Rocket IT? Well, there's three, me, myself, and I. Right? Yeah, right. <laughs> and so we end up doing all of those things. And then the key would be that over time that we could hire experts in those various functions, whether that's internal team members or external teams to come in and help with those things. And that was just super helpful for me on EMeth to sort of, hey, okay, Here's how I'm going to eventually get some of these things off, off of my plate so that I'm not doing all of those things. Yeah. But you're right. We don't probably, we probably don't enter those things. I don't know. Maybe, maybe you had the experience. I didn't of, you know, how, how do I actually sell the service that I've created and how do I build my skill set around uh, sales? Mm-hmm. Probably the biggest one for me, and it's an ongoing project, is uh, how do I lead people effectively? Right. That's not something that I learned, you know, coming up through bill collections or uh, in my education. Those things you had to sort of figure out and course books and videos and today podcasts and YouTube all helped in that area. Yeah, for sure. Skills that you have to build build and develop. Yeah, no question. And I think the CEO just starting out has to be all things because you're right. It is me, myself, and I. Mm Kind of reminds me, I'm working with a professional services firm. It was a one-person firm. Now it's a three-person firm. The lead owner has done a fabulous job building revenue. Revenue has doubled in the last 12 months, just having a, a fabulous time, including COVID. And so, but to her detriment, she has a hard time letting go. Mm. Delegation does not come natural to her. Right. And so, you know, all of us have those little tapes that play inside our heads that say, if this is going to be done right, mm. I have to do it myself. <laughs> and so part of this is having the mindset of being willing to delegate. Mm. Interesting fact only 3% of companies make it beyond 10 million in revenue really? that have mm. ever been started. Mm. You know what the number one reason is why they don't get beyond 10 million? No. Delegation. Really? Mm. And so I found early on, I tend to be a big picture person. Mm. I'm very strategic. You put me in something that requires details and I really struggle. Right. And so one of the first things that I did probably after about a year in business is I found someone who is incredibly good at details, Mm. who handles all of those flawlessly. As a matter of fact, it is her strength. Mm -hmm. And so I found that, and I'm sure you have too in, in your experience, you certainly find people to, to surround you that are really good at what they do. And sometimes that person that you're delegating to can do that task so much better than you can. Oh, for sure. And it's actually fulfilling to them to do it because mm-hmm. that's their strength. Mm-hmm. And so the whole concept of, of building your team, finding the strengths in each person in your organization and then playing to those strengths and then being willing to let go of those things 
you feel no one is going to do this the same as I'm going to do it. Well, guess what? You know, they can do it better. Right. And so that's something I've found that sometimes unintentionally a CEO can be the choke point in their own organization. Right. Which is causing some inefficiencies as well as some ineffectiveness. I love it. You're absolutely right. I can think of a number of examples in my past where, you know, there have been tasks that either are my responsibility or the responsibility of one of our other team members. And you realize, oh my goodness, not only am I not maybe the very best person to be doing these things, but I'm actually finding that that's a draining activity. That is a very taxing activity when there are other people that are maybe wired just a little bit differently Mm -hmm. that they might gain energy from doing those things. No question. We can find the folks that are, you know, interested and engaged in those activities then everyone's better for that. Yeah, it creates a win-win. Absolutely, absolutely. So kind of going through some of the things that we've talked about in the past, one of the things that we've discussed is just how do you figure out when and how much to invest in your team members? Because once once we've hired somebody and, and brought them in, we all want to grow as, uh, as professionals and grow in our skill set, and we want to be able to uh, grow in our careers. So how do you make that choice? What's the, what's the balance between, okay, I need you focused on doing the things that, that we agreed that we're going to spend our time on versus, okay, I need to put that aside and we need to go uh, spend some time learning something new or expanding our skill set in a certain area. How do you make that choice about when, when to make those investments? Gosh, that's that's a great question. In my experience, I'm I'm thinking of a another professional fir- services firm who there was a change at the top and this particular firm didn't really have an effective business, you know, outfacing business development effort. Mm-hmm. So that was incredibly critical. But the other thing to this point is they also didn't have a ongoing talent development initiative. And so what this CEO did was really first adopt the CEO mindset. In other words, I've got to spend some thinking time outside mm-hmm. of all my other CEO duties to do this. And so speaking to when do you invest in talent, I think really from the start, part of an interview process, in my opinion, might include understanding what those that person's strengths are or what their gifts are. Mm-hmm. Uh, getting back to Jim Collins's book, what are they passionate about? Right. What are they best in the world at? And so finding out what those strengths are and employing them in the organization, I think really from a a very early point, yes, the work has to get done. They're accountable for a task or a function inside that organization in order to make the organization run. But I think it's equally important to have a talent development and a talent management strategy and part of that strategy, I think, is is from, from the CEO's standpoint, 
excuse me, not the CEO standpoint, from the employee standpoint, they really need to know the organization and the CEO, the management team at the top, really cares about them. You sure. know, people don't care how much you know till they know how much you care, right? <laughs> And so I think part of that is really understanding what is that person's strengths? How do they, how do you get them in a position to leverage those strengths? And then guess what? You know, strengths develop and additional strengths also develop. You mentioned earlier leadership. Mm-hmm. Leadership is something that is often missed in organizational development. I've seen a lot of organizations that have really great managers, but don't have a lot of leaders. You know, my definition is managers manage a process, Mm. but leaders have vision. Mm. And so the ability to see things in your mind's eye, you know, the mind is a powerful thing. What What we see in our mind, we tend to bring about. And so I think talent development is so critical. And I think it's, Certainly an ongoing process. I think first it's important to have a strategy. There need to be people accountable in the organization for for executing that strategy. And then I think there needs to be metrics in place, whether it be an employee satisfaction index, whether it be having a suggestion box, leave it up to the to the management team to decide. But I think talent management is critical. This professional services firm that I mentioned has been going at their program for about three years now. Their revenue's up 10%, Hmm. has been consistently up 10% for the last three years. They've added headcount. I want to say their headcount has probably grown 10 15%. And they have not only a, a surviving, but a thriving culture because of it. Right. I've heard you talk before about growth mindset versus fixed mindset. What what do you mean when you talk about that? Yeah, now you're you're getting on a topic that I, I really lo- love to talk about. So <laughs> I'll start with a story. So I'm dating myself here a little bit, but Michael Jordan was a famous basketball player. And he played at the University of North Carolina. And when Carolina won the NCAA title, Jordan hit the winning shot, and he was interviewed after. And he said, the interviewer asked him, so right as you were taking that last shot, what were you thinking? And he answered the question. He said, what I was thinking is, I can't see myself missing. Well, the interviewer took that as an incredibly arrogant comment. He misunderstood because what Jordan was saying, in my mind's eye, I saw the ball going in before I took the shot. So mindset, so another book, I'm a big reader, Matt. So (laughs) Carol Dweck writes a book called Mindset. Okay. And essentially there are two mindsets, a fixed mindset and a growth mindset. And a fixed mindset is comes from a place we've been given all of the abilities, all of the tools that we need at birth. And so it's basically the concept that leaders are born and not really made. Mm. 
But a growth mindset is someone who doesn't really believe that they can be limited by just the skills they have today. Mm. They can grow and adapt and develop new skills, new talents, and and grow throughout their as a person as well as as a professional through the years. So it's a a mindset that I have I've never finally arrived. There's always more things that I can learn. I can do this a little better, yes, tomorrow than I can today. And I'm committed to making gradual, continuous improvement. Mm. And so the mind is a powerful thing. So I was, as a young teenager, I was playing golf at a country club in suburban Chicago. And I came to this tea. The fairway mat was lined with trees all the way up both sides of the fairway. I'm looking at this. I'm getting ready to hit my drive. I am almost paralyzed with fear. <laughs> There's no way I can hit this shot. All right. And so I had an adopted uncle. His name was Uncle Stan, and I was Billy back then. He said, Billy, the widest fairway is only six inches. Hmm. I looked at him. And so he said, yeah, the widest fairway is only six inches. And he was pointing from one side of his, his head mm. to the other. In other <laughs> words, it's right. all in your mind. Right. And so what I believed then, as well as now, is we all have self-limiting beliefs that we can't do something. But having a growth mindset is really about breaking through those self-limiting beliefs mm-hmm. and re- really being the person that you were meant to be. Mm. And so, as you can tell, I do a lot of reading. I, I believe I have a growth mindset. Certainly, I am most effective coaching business owners that also have a growth mindset because they always believe that they can do things a little bit better, make the environment a better place to work at for the benefit of their employees. And, and so... That's really what a, what a growth mindset is. I can learn more. I can become better. I can do more. And I, I can be more fulfilled and more satisfied. And that's really what I found when I launched my business 12 years ago. If I, if I had finished my career as a banker, I certainly would have been happy, but I'm not sure I would have been as satisfied Mm. because for the last 12 years, now certainly there have been bumps along the road, so I don't want to minimize that. But gosh, it's felt like a lot of tailwinds. Right. It hasn't. It's just flowed. And when you love what you do, it just has a way of lifting your spirits. I told my wife when I first started the business, man, every day feels like Christmas, and I'm about to open a present. <laughs> and so. So that's that's really what a growth mindset is about. I love it. You know, as you're kind of talking through that and previously about the investment in people, I began to sort of think about what, how does that play into the long-term plan for every entrepreneur? And when I mean long, I mean very long. You know, most of us, when we start our businesses, we're thinking about the near-term future. 
How do I get through the first month? Yeah. How do I make payroll through the first year? What do I hope my business looks like two or three years from now? There's probably less emphasis, at least early on, in what happens 10, 20, 30 years down the road. And what I've seen over and over again from my friends and and acquaintances that have started and ended businesses over a long period of time is that many times our fellow entrepreneurs don't really have a plan for what is what does the end game look like for the entrepreneur. And so I want to unpack that just a little bit and talk about it if you've got experience in that area because well you mentioned you know i've been running this business for longer than 25 years you said uh, that uh, you started your business at 54 and we know you've been running it for some time you and i are beginning to you know if we're looking three five ten fifteen years out there's probably going to be a transition that's going to take place and how do we how we prepare for that and specifically going back to developing our people None of us, I don't think, most of us probably don't want our businesses to end when we decide to retire. Yeah. Right. And so there has to be a plan in place of how do we develop the people within the organization so that they can run the business without our help. Right. And so I'd just like to unpack that a little bit and wonder if the folks that you're working with and and your business, if that's on the radar or, or as a whole, are people really thinking about how to transition out of the business someday? Yeah, such a great question. And the answer is yes. Okay, good. Uh, the, good. You know, it seems like a lot of folks end up with no plan. Well, <laughs> unfortunately, you're right. Yeah. And so I think two things that are going on, and, and one of those is a, is a mindset thing. I think first... A lot of business owners are have their head down. They're grinding through the day-to-day aspects of their business, and they are so busy working in their business, Matt, they don't take time to work on their business. Mm-hmm. You know, if I, was, if I was a lumberjack trying to cut a path through a forest, but all I was doing was cutting down trees, I could be cutting a path to a cliff or to a lake, you know, somebody needs to shimmy up a tree and take a look from above Mm -hmm. and see where in the world this is going. Right. And so, yeah. So part of it, I think is a business owner's mindset that they need to be mindful of working on the business. So that would be number one. Number two, yesterday I had this very conversation that you brought up. Uh, this business owner has been so busy generating value in his organization that he really hasn't thought much about how do I preserve the value that I've created. Mm. And so business succession planning is is really absolutely critical. And and again, it takes a village. I would say at least to start, someone needs to have a, have an advisor that they can go to and say, Hey, I'm only going to exit once. I want to be sure I'm going to do it right. You know, how do I do this? They need to have a really good CPA Mm -hmm. because that succession of that business will certainly create some tax consequences for the owner at Mm -hmm. exit. Mm 
And then the, the third thing is usually you have to have a really good attorney. And, and so the whole concept of exit planning is kind of, okay, what's my number? A lot of business owners that I talk to don't have a number mm. and they haven't factored in taxes and they haven't factored in if they have any debt because typically most businesses are bought as an asset purchase and debt has to be paid paid off out of right. those proceeds. And so what's my number? And then am I selling to insiders? Is there a management team that I've groomed to take over? And so that is certainly one choice. Some businesses are sold to outsiders, to a strategic or a financial buyer. But yeah, the whole process of succession planning is a thing. There are probably three things that I'm talking with several of my clients that I'm doing this with right now, making sure that they have financial statements, preferably audited, mm. but at least reviewed. Because typically a buyer, if they're going to try to shoot holes in your business, they're going to say, well, your numbers haven't been verified by an independent third party. The second thing, a lot of business owners haven't thought through, you know, there is going to be a group that stays and runs the business after that owner exits. And so has that owner done a good job of putting compensation agreements in place that gives some insurance to the buyer that that management team doesn't walk out the same day that the that the owner does. So first would be, what's your number? Second thing, are you selling to an insider or an outsider? Another option that is worth considering, I have one client that's employee stock ownership plan. ESOP, sure. And so an mm -hmm. ESOP is also a way for a business owner to exit. And then probably between financials, compensation agreements for the management team. The third thing that gets just about everybody is documented processes. Mm. In writing, and by the way, is there a, a management person or team in place to make sure that there's, those processes are being followed? Mm. Because what I find, and I'm probably guilty of this myself a little bit, you know, I, I can be the cobbler's child that has no <laughs> shoes. <laughs> right, sure. <laughs> Having those processes in writing, your sales process, your operations or client delivery process, your finance process, billing and payment, producing reports, things like that, all of that needs to be in writing. And I would really suggest packaging it and basically name it, you know, the ABC company way. You know, mm. this is how we do business here. Because right. it's powerful to handle, to hand over to a buyer, uh, documented processes of, of how we do business. And, and it doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be perfect, but I'd say if you can, if you can get 80% of the process documented in 20% of the time, I think you've, you've pretty much got it there. Right. So right. that's the whole that's thing important. as far as, as business succession planning or exit planning. It's, it's a big deal. Yeah. You know, uh, we, we work with, a number of coaches and consultants and, 
Uh, by the way, I think that's super important. You're the profitability coach. I think there are a lot of folks out there that ought to be working with a profitability coach, leadership coaches. There are all kinds of different folks that we would bring into our organization to uh, help make sure that we're pointed in the right direction and keeping the, you know, the train on the tracks. Sure. But one of our consultants that we work with on a regular basis talks about the value creation strategy. Mm-hmm. And specifically what they're talking about is, hey, you know, you've built this business that may have purpose and mission that is very altruistic. You want to deliver a great service that helps people. You know, that's, that's an altruistic type of service. But at the end of the day, that business needs to generate profit as fuel but also as a return on that investment of time and resources from, from the entrepreneur. And so that, that's where that value creation strategy comes in is, okay, as the entrepreneur, as the major shareholder of this business, how am I going to create value and, and get a return for that investment? And that might, in fact, probably does include, okay, well, part of the way is we're going to generate profits year to year and take some of those profits. Right. But another important way is at the end, is there a plan for an exit that generates additional value and return for those shareholders? And I think that's the part that, at least for a lot of smaller organizations and solo entrepreneurs, there's not always a great plan in place. I just think it's an important thing that folks are focused on. No question. I think, who was it? Covey said, I believe, start with the end in mind. (laughs) <laughs> and right. work backwards. Right. And so I think each business owner needs to define for himself or herself, what's the end game? Yeah. Is it a financial number? Is it a revenue number that I've grown to? Is it the number of people that I have employed in my organization? Everyone defines it on their terms, Matt. Mm-hmm. But not having a plan, in my mind, is is planning to fail. So, yeah. So I remember, I think it was IBM back in the day had plan ahead with the D kind of beginning to fall off. So, so make sure the D doesn't fall off when you plan ahead. (laughs) So as you look ahead years from now, you retired and sailed off into the sunset. What, what's the legacy that you hope to leave behind Bill? Yeah. So probably back to, to what I mentioned when I started, I saw business owners struggle with financial management. And so my legacy, I hope, will be I will have left the world a better place making business owners better financial managers, not only understanding their numbers, but understanding how to leverage their numbers to really drive profitability. And so if I can if I can leave a legacy of having made business owners better financial managers who can understand and leverage their numbers and really have the business of their dreams, I hope that's how I'll be remembered. I bet that's exactly how I'll be remembered. That's that's great, Bill. So uh, let's uh, let's kind of wrap up with a couple of questions that we try to ask all of our guests. Sure. And I know you talked about it. You're an avid reader and you've read some of what I consider the, the classics. E-Myth for sure, good to great. Simon Sinek's all about the why. You know, all those are just great reads. 
Can you tell us about any other, uh, what, what are you reading right now? What podcasts are you listening to? What, how, how are you learning these days and growing? Yeah, so I guess a couple of things. First, give a shout out to Sally Hogshead. She has written several books on branding. Uh-huh. One, of, one of them is Fascinate. Okay. So how do you have a brand that really fascinates people? Mm-hmm. So that's an excellent read. Another one that I'm reading right now is by Patrick Lencioni, Five Dysfunctions of a Team. Yeah. Uh, and, and so that's an excellent book. Podcast. I love Guy Raz's podcast oh, on NPR, yeah. How uh-huh. I Built This. Yes. And so those are, you know, those are the things that I'm reading. On a personal note, things I'm reading also. So I'm a rose grower. Oh, okay. And so I love to grow roses. Part of getting me through COVID was being able to take clarity breaks and go walk right. in the in the rose garden a little bit. Kind of so, peak season right now, isn't it? Yeah, 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 it is. And so, so I do some reading on on how to grow how to grow roses. Interesting. Uh, as an aside, I don't know if you've ever made it to Portland and the yes. rose test garden there. Yes. It's gorgeous. It's just an unbelievable place to yeah. go. So, is, the, is your garden, is it like that? Uh, no, no. <laughs> uh, not, not even close. It's hard to grow roses in the South just because really? of the humidity. Oh, interesting. Yeah, humidity. So Portland, cooler climate. Sure. Less humidity. It does get hot during the summer, it but does. certainly in the winter. Much yeah, cooler. yeah. And so, but yeah, you have to. You have to have ideal growing conditions, and, and we certainly do spring and fall, but but summers here are, are right. hot. So, Bill, you mentioned a couple of times that it takes a village. Can you tell us about one person that's uh, had a profound impact on your journey? Yeah, one. it would be hard to narrow it down to one. Uh, <laughs> can, can I have a couple? You can. So, I think first, professionally, Cullen Blaylock is a CPA with Jones and Cobb, okay. someone that I've known probably 30 years. Cullen was kind enough to sit me down and say, okay, Bill, you're now a business owner. These are the things that you need to do, and these are the things that you need to be thinking about. Mm. That was absolutely critical. Even coaches have a coach. I'd have to give a shout-out to to Dean Harbury. Dean has certainly helped me understand who I am as a business owner, but even more important, who I am as a person. I am a hyper achiever, which can mean my professional life is going great, but I don't necessarily have as much in reserve for my personal life, my Ah. family life. And so Dean has been invaluable. Third person, without a doubt, on the personal side is my wife. Oh, yeah. Uh, My wife is my biggest fan, my biggest supporter. I married my high school sweetheart, and she has supported me and and affirmed the decisions and has really helped me at times when maybe I didn't see something because I had some self-limiting beliefs myself, like I mentioned (laughs) earlier. So I would say those three are probably the big ones, and I'm confident I've left one or two, pe- one or two people out. Right. But those are the ones that that really stand out to me. Always great to have a, a partner in life, right? Yes, 
because it is easy, especially in the early days of a business, to just get swallowed up by that whole thing. You can. So, so that's good to know. So any key lessons that you've learned, any, any big ahas that you've learned as an entrepreneur that maybe weren't obvious when you're working at the bank? Yeah. So I think, and we touched on it a little bit earlier, be open to pivot your business based on what your clients are asking you to do. Mm. And so if I had stuck to my original plan, I probably would have done nothing but negotiate loans and find financing. Sure. Coaching practice never would have happened, but clients kept asking me to help them. So understanding when you need to pivot, and why you need to pivot. And then the other thing is your clients can be great market intelligence for products and services. I have a handful of clients that I might call and say, hey, I'm thinking about launching this product or this service. What do you think? Mm -hmm. This is what I think it would do for you. If I offered it, would you buy it? And so some of those I've implemented, some of those I haven't. But, but yeah, knowing when to pivot and also being alert to new products and services that maybe your clients might want, but sure. didn't know you had the ability to offer. Love it. So Bill McDermott, the profitability coach, for the benefit of our listeners, who, who's an ideal client for you and how, how, how would they reach you? Oh, gosh. An ideal client for me is probably someone with a growth mindset. Mm someone who is committed to making gradual continuous improvement in their business, someone who is a high achiever. And I would also say best way to reach me several ways. First, they can connect with me on LinkedIn. My profile is Bill J. McDermott. Also, my mobile number is 770-597-3136. Also, you can go to theprofitabilitycoach.net, schedule a call with me if you just want to have an initial discovery call. So those would be the best ways. Fantastic. Well, on that note, Bill, it's time to wrap things up. Thank you so much for being here. Our audience and I, of course, very much appreciate your time. To our listeners, thank you for tuning in. Uh, should you have any suggestions on future topics that you'd like to hear more about, please email us at podcasts at rocketit.com. And finally, before we sign off, I'd like to provide our security-focused listeners with a limited-time offer. Through the end of 2021, Rocket IT is offering audience members access to its phishing testing and security training platform completely free of charge. To see if you're eligible for this offer, simply visit rocketit.com slash phishing, which is spelled P-H-I-S-H-I-N-G. Thank you so much.